Welcome back to part two of a special two-part edition of the MindWorks podcast about the impact of COVID-19 on the nature of work and the workspace itself. This is your host, Danielle Serfati. In the first episode, we talk with workspace designer, Karin Shalhav-Salkin, human language scientist, Mary Fryman, and industrial organizational psychologist, Dr. Kara Orvis. In part two of this wide-ranging discussion, my three guests and I delve further into this topic to explore what we learned from working through the COVID pandemic that we can take forward and help us reimagine work in the 21st century. To switch back on a couple more questions before we start imagining the future, I want to go back to a theme that really dominated your first remark, Mary and Cara, and actually Karin too, is this notion of have we crossed boundaries that shouldn't have been crossed before, the boundaries between the workspace and the home space? In a sense, if you go back to the Middle Ages, those boundaries were not there. People were working where they slept, actually, to, for a lot of professions. And little by little, suddenly, we created this notion of going to work. You know, if you're a peasant, of course, you have to go to work, to work the field, uh, to milk the cows. But by and large, if you were a craft person, you stay, you know, in the back of your home, and that's where your shop is. Should there be boundaries to begin with now? Are well, we talking about the merger of the two concepts? The work is home and the home is work. And as we design the workspace, the physical workspace, as Karin was suggesting, we should design more home-like pods or for reflections, for just backing off, for just doing other things that we do at home. Is 50 years from now, the distinction is going to be obsolete. So when I got into organizational psychology, my first passion was what they called work-life balance, helping employees balance. Are people still using that concept, by the way? Word. You know, there's some folks who say it's not right to think about it in terms of balance. Like I've got to spend eight hours here and eight hours here, but it's more about life balance, right? So what are the activities that are more maybe work-related that you want to achieve and you want to do? And what are the light, the non-work activities? And there's probably other ways to bucket all these activities that you want to achieve. And I think that became really apparent to me in my own experience recently is what are my goals? What am I trying to achieve? And now that my life is, <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Like, what do I want to make happen? And I let some things go that I thought were really important to me. And I said, these aren't goals I'm going to have for the next year. But it's like, what do you want to achieve related to work? What do you want to achieve related to your own health and wellness? What do you want to achieve related to family or emotional connections in your life? And there's many other things, but I think it's about taking that perspective and saying, this is the stuff that matters to me. And this is where I need to spend my time. I think we spend a lot of time and there's lots of books written about this on things that don't ultimately matter to us. And that is what I am trying to get better at personally is Am I doing the thing that matters to me in this moment, in this hour, in this 15 minutes that I have? I'm not even close to being where I want to be, but I'm thinking about it and trying to figure it out. Mary, do you think that self-reflection about really focusing on the essential or what really matters, we're going to see a shift in that? 
I think that that's nice when you have a lot of options. So it just it works out that for me, having my kids home while I was trying to get work done, it was an option. It wasn't a good option. And I want them out of the house as much as possible for working <laughs> forever after. And so if you have the sorts of options where you can consider the work that you need to get done in a particular time and whether your kids can be present for that or whether you can discard that work and do something else or considering your options and be more mindful of it, that's always a good thing. And generally, people have more options. I think what Kara really is saying is we almost always have more options than we think we have. And so if you're going back to pre-industrial revolution era and looking at the cottage industries, you probably did not have a lot of options for where your kids should go that day. And so maybe you would be more likely to include them in your work, teach them and let them help you. But my kids were terrible helpers and employees for my work. So I won't be doing that. <laughs> uh, I keep trying, but they're just no use whatsoever. But that's just how work has changed. The nature of work has changed so much in the past 200 years that we don't even consider using children as labor for the most part, because it would not be useful <laughs> for most of our industries. You're going to get this podcast in trouble, Mary Freeman. I'm saying don't don't use your kids. <laughs> They're not helpful. I've tried. I think we're all in agreement that there's no one size fits all solution, you know, and again, it comes back to the flexibility and the flow, like maybe for younger families with kids that are younger, the flexibility or the time spent here or there is different. And I have to say that as a mother of three kids, it can get very, very lonely not seeing people. Like there were days I was like, I wish I could talk to a person who's over five feet and does not take care of my kid or give me change because that was like so dismal. And there was a lot of like alone time as a young parent, especially with a husband that was traveling so much. But I do think it crystallized a lot of things, this pandemic. It crystallized that, yes, we're paying more to landscapers than we are paying to our educators who did not make it especially in the Northeast, a priority to go back into the schools and the public schools. And it was very, very difficult to experience it as someone who thought that she was living in the best education system in the world and that kids were not taken care of. And when kids were not taken care of, it felt that I, as an adult, am not taken care of and that I don't matter in this society and I don't matter as an essential person of productivity. And you know, when I try to kind of be very cynical about it, like, what is the workplace? What is the office? And it's like, it's basically like a huge factory of paperwork shuffling. And as we put everything more and more and more in the cloud or in servers in Alaska, what exactly does it mean? It's very, it becomes more and more conceptual, which comes to the space that you guys all work in with AI agents and so forth. And how do we the gap of that knowing, doing materializes. And at the end of the day, we're human. Like we need this human interaction. We need this cross-pollination of ideas and just being together. And, you know, now we have Zoom that I would have never met you to if we hadn't sat in Zoom now or heard your ideas and thoughts about it. And that's mind-blowing, right? Like that should not be taken for granted that you can yeah. actually listen to other people. But on the other hand, 
I would much rather sit and have like a lunch somewhere, you know, if it doesn't thunderstorm on us and enjoy it. So I don't know. I don't know what is the right situation or space for things. It's not clear cut anymore. It's not. And I would like to ask you a couple of questions. Can you give me your yeah or nay kind of answer, if possible? There are questions. I made a list of those things that were enhanced or maybe affected by, positively or negatively, by the last 18 months of working on a COVID, that here are some features of productive work. Okay, Were they enhanced or diminished? Or as probably you're going to tell me, it depends. Share example if you want. So I'm going to say teamwork, was it enhanced or diminished by COVID? Kara, you're an expert on teamwork. I really saw very little impact day to day. I will say that we got rid of some of the non-essential activities, which helped. Although I do think it's a little more effort in terms of communication and coordination in a fully distributed. So I think communication increased for sure. Um, But I think all my team experiences were really positive. So Karin, how about empathy or perspective taking? Was it enhanced? These are good features of productive work usually in a team. Do you think that was enhanced or diminished by COVID? I think it was intellectualized. I think the word empathy has become more of an intellectual go-to rather than actually really seeing. I think we've all suffered through this pandemic and we're all trying to say, well, there's some suffering more than me. Instead of for a second, seeing ourselves and saying, yeah, it was hard. It was hard and it's okay that it was hard. And it doesn't mean that I'm not empathetic to other people that are suffering more, but it means that I'm acknowledging my strife and my pain in order for me to move forward. So it's become a go-to HR word. I'm not sure that people are really allowing themselves to scan their state and understand that they've also been through something. And once they're there, the empathy will go back to being a word that is not intellectualized. That's an interesting cut on it. Mary, a sense of belonging, was it accentuated or diminished? I think for people like myself who have been remote for a long time, to have people join me in the remote boat and we are all under the same conditions, it has gone up. I feel like I do belong. Also, I like seeing people's houses and their kids walk by and their babies interrupt meetings and things like that, because that's all very relatable to me. And my dog barks sometimes and people like my dog. These are things that I never really shared with my coworkers before or they saw into my life, but I never saw into theirs. And so I definitely do feel like there's more belonging in this version. Kara, again, leadership, was it enhanced or diminished? So I always think about leadership in terms of influence. And I do think that that, again, well, that probably was compromised a little bit in terms of the number of people that you can touch I also know that when you're in a distributed setting, you have less information than if you're face-to-face. And so one little thing someone can say in a uh, virtual chat room, right, 
can have a lot heavier weight than maybe it would have when a lot of people were so located and had other kinds of information coming in. And so I found it challenging, a little more challenging when everyone was remote in terms of the information that they're getting and how people are being influenced and knowing who's influencing who. I think that landscape of collaboration has changed quite a bit and is organized differently, more around projects than maybe location. That's interesting. So let me flip it around and look at some features that usually lead to unproductive work. Were they mitigated or even, in a sense, compensated for or emphasized or augmented during COVID age? Karin, workload, stress, more of it, less of it for the workers. I think there was more of it. I think it was very stressful. I think the stress was more because of the more of external things of like, you know, the school's closed and today we're doing Zoom this way. So it's like, for me, it was very external. There was always inbound and I had to kind of deflect it all the time. And I felt the stress. And again, a lot of the supporting scaffolds that a lot of women have of childcare and cleaning and so forth were non-existent, at least in our household at the beginning. So I think talking about child labor, that's something that we added on to them. They're old enough not to drink the chemicals. It's one of those things that I personally felt very, very stressed at the beginning. And I think there was a lot of like, you know, when are we going to get the next, you know, grocery shopping in? It's going to be all these items. So there's a lot of like survivor flight or fight moments that I had at least initially at the beginning. And as we streamlined things more, I think it was easier to kind of navigate some of the things. And we become experts, right? Like we become experts of navigating inbound external stresses. Okay. Mary, burnout. Burnout? Oh, man. I hope it's not from this particular interview. Not this particular interview, but I would definitely say, and this is something that I've seen across everybody, not just Aptima, not just my friends, everybody that I can think of has been burned out to some extent because our lives were upended. There was a tremendous amount of uncertainty and stress. And then the things that we would normally do to get away from stress were not available to us anymore. It was impossible to take a sneaky day off while your kids are at school. You couldn't necessarily go to the gyms. Gyms were closed for a long time. You can't go see a movie in the movie theater. You can't go out to eat with your friends or even meeting with your friends. Like we all had new restrictions on the things that we would normally do to escape the duties of our lives and just have fun. And fun was hard to come by for a long time. Even now, it's difficult to take a vacation and have a normal vacation experience that you would do. Resorts are different and museums are closed and things just aren't the same in the way that they used to be. So taking time off has a different feel to it than it did. And I think a lot of us just didn't take time off because there was nowhere to go and nothing to do. That makes sense. I mean, we can look at other markers of unproductive work and compare. I think it would be a good exercise for us to do as, again, we think about the future. Overall, if you have to look at this year and a half, do you think that we were more or less productive than before? 
both as individual, but also as enterprises or corporations. Kara, you want to give a shot at that? I didn't work as much. I probably shouldn't tell you that, Daniel, but <laughs> uh, what I found was it was really difficult, especially when the kids were in school or caretaking, to work a 10 or 12-hour day. So what I could do is I could work a six or eight-hour day. And I had to be really careful about where I spent my time. So I think I was as productive, but not as busy with work activities. I think I had to volunteer a little less often, but yeah. So that's interesting. I'd like to hear at the individual level, both Karine and Mary, what do you think where Americans or, you know, not just Americans, but knowledge workers in particular, more or less productive? by the measures that we measure productivity, you know, that it depends on the industry. But So being American and being in America, you have to be busy, right? Like your identity is what my workplace is. And we're talking about spaces. So I work on Wall Street and that gives you a title and identity and so forth. So it's like when that is stripped away from you, the essence of, you know, what you do becomes very interesting. I can say that my husband had an extremely productive time. You know, he was able to do a lot of work. Was I productive? Not maybe in the way that it's measured in the Western world, but yes, I was productive in the sense that I was able to shelter my kids from horrendous effects of being alone. And I have a wide range of a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And I will give one example as like the initial start. It was like, you know, it was all the little ones, right? You have to figure out their Zooms, their Zoom, whatever. And then, you know, I have a 15 year old at home. It's like, what am I going to do with her too? And we suddenly at 10 PM, we would sit and watch the West Wing. So I think in that sense, yes, I was very creative in that. And I was very creative in the ways that we could meet people safely outdoors. Um, You know, and past summer we created like an outdoor kitchen and so forth. And, We've done a lot of projects in the house, but in terms of work, work, as we define it, absolutely nothing. Okay. <laughs> Mary, if, you want to give us your answer to that productivity question? <laughs> yeah. If watching TV with your kids counts, then I was very productive. <laughs> and this past year, my kids started watching The Simpsons, and I think they have seasons three through nine memorized and they quote it at appropriate times. So we are on board, very productive, no issues there whatsoever. But once we figured out how things were going to be and what we would need to do to adjust, I think a lot of people had different situations where they might have found they were more productive because they weren't in the office and they enjoyed being at home and they didn't have to commute and being at home to work worked really well for them. And so on average, I would guess that it was about the same as usual and maybe not a huge difference. And I would say where we would see people being less productive would be, you know, when they've got to manage a whole new life (laughs) or additional lives in their homes at the same time they're trying to work or if they're completely burnt out because they aren't taking the breaks and taking care of themselves and socializing with other people in the ways that they would normally do. Thank you. I think humor apart, indeed, 
the very concept of what counts on the vertical axis of individual productivity has changed. And so there is a big, it depends here, what is it to be productive, not just as a worker, but as a human being. And I think this is something we have to take into account as we reflect about the future, about people having a sense of accomplishment. You don't throw that just about the number of, I don't know, of customers I talked to today or the amount of dollars I brought to the company or by other more objective measures, but a lot of other measures will have to be blended into that index of productivity. For corporation, it's different. And we've observed, I have observed, you know, through discussions with other corporations that 2020 was a strange year because it separated fundamentally two kinds of corporations, no matter what size, no matter what industry sometimes. Some corporations did extremely well, strangely enough, and some corporations, apparently in very good health at the beginning of 2020, saw their productivity deteriorate to dangerous level. And I hope people will, uh, you know, do PhD dissertation in business schools for the years to come to understand what is it, what kind of resilient DNA did this company have versus this company? What is it that some companies did very well and some companies really did very poorly? And I think that will be for the future to understand. We understand it locally, but we should be careful about not generalizing it. So I want to go back to a topic that we discussed earlier. And I think, Karin, you started us there about the inequity that sometimes happens with these technologies when you gave the example of this African-American colleague or other parent who actually didn't feel that Zoom, for example, was an equal opportunity device in the sense that it presented all kinds of new challenges because of that. And therefore, my question here is, do you believe that the COVID affected certain populations more than others in terms of their work or their family life because of the particular configurations? For example, are women more affected? Are minorities more affected? Younger workers, older workers more affected? Are people with disabilities more affected or less affected? Do you mind commenting on that? The short answer is yes, absolutely different demographics suffered or enjoyed certain aspects. There's many examples you can see online, even just, you know, the vaccination process here in Massachusetts. It was very clear that elderly populations or people without good access to good Internet or even just basic skills of just writing your health insurance card information. If you don't have health insurance, you can't do that. So there is a basic inequity in that. I think that what was interesting is people with disabilities, when Zoom came on, you know, what happens to blind people? What happens to deaf people? It's very difficult. As people were wearing masks in public places, people that are unable to hear, it was very difficult for them to be engaged. Cara probably knows more about it, but even small babies, how do they interact in preschools if they were open with mask staff? I think people who did not have white collar job beforehand suffered the most because it was very hard to go out, find a job or start a career path when you have the connections to reach out and kind of say, well, can you connect me with so-and-so and so forth? I'll just give one example that you may want to think about in terms of design and you know agents and so forth. We tend to think that all these automated things are kind of colorblind, but I don't know if you're aware of that soap dispensers the public and public bathrooms, soap dispensers can't process dark skin. 
So the soap won't float down. So it probably has to have a certain amount of light that comes underneath it for the soap to float down. So that's a design flaw that I would never experience, but someone of color does experience. And I'm wondering how many of those design flaws we are experiencing within the virtual world and the agents, and if we're observing them or taking them into account. So I think if I would take a positive out of COVID is really examining these occasions and saying, well, we can do better and we can find a way to solve this so people will have the access to it. No, thank you. That's certainly insightful. Cara, Mary, you think some subpopulation around you that in the work environment suffered more than others or were affected more than others? So personally, you know, I have a lot of friends who work in the restaurant industry, and obviously that was pretty impacted in terms of job loss. Also, I have a lot of, I know families who are going through divorces where they were dual income or two family, two parents now are one parent. Some lost their jobs, some didn't, both had different struggles related to that. So I think the industry you're working in really had an impact. And, you know, we know certain people with certain demographics work in certain industries. So I think that probably impacted people at ethnicity, race perspective, and SES perspective as well. You know, I'm a woman, white woman, educated. I think I had my own challenges that were very different than probably challenges other people who don't fit my demographics had. I do feel incredibly lucky. I will say that I had a positive experience in a lot of ways in terms of I used to travel quite a bit for my job. My husband has an hour commute each way. The amount of family time I got, although overwhelming in many ways, was also tremendously valuable and wonderful. And my husband and I talk about how we'll look back on this and the kids will it'll just be like this amazing family time that we got together. We maintained a pretty positive perspective on that. So I'm not the Department of Labor and Statistics. So I'm not 100% sure on who was affected the most, but I do remember hearing that women were more likely to leave the workforce altogether last year. And I think there was one month in particular where a million women left the workforce. So women are more likely to be in certain sectors that were really affected. And because of the nature of their jobs that couldn't continue under certain restrictions. And women are also more likely to have part-time work in the first place because of their family obligations or other reasons. So my guess is that women were more likely to lose their jobs and it will be all the more likely that it will be difficult for them to re-enter the workforce in the upcoming years. And then beyond that, anybody who was making it previously, but did not have structures in place in their lives or in their communities that would support them when things were very difficult would be affected more than people who are more fortunate. I think that the question of how technology can support people with disabilities in particular is something of interest to me. And I've been thinking about how software can be made accessible in particular. One factor in my personal life is that I grew up with my stepdad who was blind. And at the time in the 90s growing up, he had a lot of technological workarounds that we probably didn't know were available. 
but he used a computer and it would read out loud to him and things like that. And so now when I think of programs that we have now and what is out there for people with at least visual impairments, it's so much better than it used to be. And we're very fortunate that this exists. But in a time when everybody had to change from one form of working to a completely new one, I imagine that there was quite a bit of friction where you would discover where the limitations of that type of software was. So as I look into creating solutions for people that are hopefully generalizable beyond our initial customers, I do try to think of how they can be made accessible to people who may have visual or hearing impairments, as an example. Oh, that's very good. That's probably going to be exacerbated more as we move to more technology-mediated workplace that those considerations are going to be more and more important, not just in terms of the same way that we have building with access ramps, et cetera, but now looking even at the cognitive disability level or differences and being able to design around it. If one of the implications of COVID is going to be to redesign a workspace in a center, distributed workspace that is going to be very technology intensive, I think those questions are going to come back. We'll be back in just a moment. Stick around. Hello, MindWorks listeners. This is Danielle Surfati. Do you love MindWorks but don't have time to listen to an entire episode? Then we have a solution for you. MindWorks Minis, curated segments from the MindWorks podcast, condensed to under 15 minutes each and designed to work with your busy schedule. You'll find the minis along with full-length episodes under MindWorks on Apple, Spotify, Buzzsprout, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'd like to devote the remainder of our time here to really perhaps extract ourselves from the COVID trap and imagine the future. I'm going to ask each one of you to give me one thing, one habit, one work habit that was constructive for them during COVID that they would like to adopt as a matter of routine for the future. Because they say, wow, this is my insight. I want to keep that saying even though if COVID never makes a return appearance on the world stage. Pick one. I think the biggest thing that I've learned is to take 24 hours to respond to things. I'm a very reactive and impulsive person, and it served me well to slow down and say, you know what? I know it's rapid, and I know all of us need to be part of the ever changing world, but, you know, waiting 24 hours before responding to something has served me very, very well. And, and I hope to keep it, especially when it's very emotional. I'll write things down for myself, but I'll send it the next day as a, a point. That's an interesting insight to carry forward. Kara, Mary, do you have other things like specific work things that you did this year or workspace things that you did this year that you'd like to carry forward? In your particular case, I assume that was for the foreseeable future, you'll be also a remote worker, so to speak? One thing is I feel more comfortable. This was some advice someone had given me before COVID, and that was to build in your personal items. So as a distributed worker, I would try to make myself available all the time, all hours of the day. And there's also a time difference because I'm on the West Coast. And I think people gained an appreciation for, and I felt more comfortable during COVID to say, 
nope, I'm not going to be available between 6 and 7 a.m. because that is the time that I want to exercise. So it's the best time for me. So I'm going to try to make that happen three days a week. And I felt more comfortable doing it. And I think my colleagues were very supportive of that activity. So I hope to set more boundaries to make sure I engage in certain activities that are important to me. That's a good advice. Mine would definitely be similar to Kara's where I have started blocking time off on my calendar, not even for exercise, which thank you, I do need to do that too. But for the sake of getting work done, because part of what's happened during COVID is that everybody is on Zoom all the time and wants to have meetings. And I have to be very protective of the time that I spend working during my workday that is not just meetings. And so I'm trying to be more strict about declining invites and not filling my day up with Zoom meetings. And then the other thing, of course, is that I commandeered this uh, spare bedroom for my office space and I'm not giving it back. I don't think I refer to it as my room now. And it's sort of like, you know, when you're a teenager and you aren't sharing a room with your sister anymore. It's great. I have my own room. So I'm not giving that back anytime soon. I don't know about commandeering rooms, but regarding the right to block times, not just for exercising or for going for a hike or just for reflecting, but the right to block time to organize your, say, I'm not meeting during three and five on Wednesday or whatever. It's always been your right to do that, but it's becoming much more socially acceptable now. People expect that, and people do respect that most of the time. So because of the proliferation of uh, meetings, there is an empathy effect, and it's not just jargon. People totally understand that it is okay for Mary to block that time, and it's the burden is on me to find some time other than that time to meet with her if I need to meet with her. So that's a good thing that came out of all these things. Kara, you had your hand up? Yeah, I was going to say, I think part of it has to do to people realizing how important it is. If you bring an employee in and you want to retain them, you don't want them to burn out. Like, you know, these activities are critical to their health and well-being. And so I hope that people feel that way. Yes. So earlier to talk again about the future and how that certain things will shape that, you mentioned that word essential, essential worker. There are some words that emerged during COVID, but how persistent are they in the future? The notion of essential worker, the notion of hybrid, hybrid. It's an interesting adjective if you think about it. Hybrid workspace or workplace. The notion of virtual presence, a virtual meeting, as opposed to real meeting. Sometimes contrast virtual and real in an interesting way. What do they evoke in you? Are they just words that we use because we have to use something in the vocabulary or are they signaling a major change in the future? I'll start with the most contentious one, I think, for a lot of people was the word essential. And I grew up with two parents that are doctors. So essential was always there, right? Like I remember snow emergencies. My parents were essential. Like, you know, they would plow the path to the hospital. But I think... The challenge with it was that it was murky, right? You weren't sure what was essential and what wasn't. Like grocery shops were essential. People going to the hospital were essential. Our teachers essential. Some workforces reacted a certain way. And then at a certain point, I have a cousin 
who's chronically ill, two-time kidney transplant. And she's wonderful at articulating certain aspects. And she's an actress. And she was in Los Angeles for a while. And then she had to return to Canada because, you know, her health didn't allow her to stay in the United States in a way that they could support themselves. So it was very poignant when she wrote something about you don't dare call me not essential because the hours you spend on Netflix or reading a book or listening to music is as essential to your soul as the person who is going to the hospital or the teacher or the engineer. And so I think it's really important for me to bring across the message, not just for myself or the people listening, but also to my kids that we're all essential. Everything we do with intention is important. And as long as we're kind to each other, and as long as we're open to each other, we're all essential because it's human fabric, right? That's some of it. To touch upon the word of hybrid, what was really fascinating for me is we're in this world now that there's a lot of conversation about transgender and being gender fluid. And I know I'm going on a tangent here, but I feel that that fluidity and understanding that we're not zero ones and zero ones, and it's not all binary, is allowing for more flexibility in the way that we treat how work is done. If we can do it in two days and it's all done, that's fine. And then we can take two days to surf. You know, things like that are becoming more and more acceptable. But it does raise the question of boundaries and responsibilities. What is the employer responsible for? Is a person who's working from home, are they responsible for their high-speed internet? Are they responsible for the electricity? Are they responsible for furnishing their space? I mean, those are questions that can be asked. I mean, some offices that I went to, suddenly there were no chairs there. And it was the first thing that people took home when they were allowed back in the offices was taking their work chairs back to their homes because they were sitting for hours and hours at home. So I think the hybrid model, I would probably call it the non-binary model. I'm not sure if I would call it hybrid anymore because it's not 50-50. It's not like, you know, a Prius where you have fuel and battery operated car. It's something a bit more complex. It's a bit more a web of how we will be able to manage work. It's going to be more complicated to manage it, but I think will gain a lot of creative moments from it as well. Very interesting. Thank you. How about you, Karen Mary? This notion of virtual and hybrid and the central, are we signaling something like this continuum as opposed to this binary way to look? I'm remote or I'm not remote. I'm working or I'm not working. I'm at home or I'm in the office. As opposed to a more gestalt kind of continuum way to look at life in general, but at work in particular. Well, For the beginning of the pandemic, when we were thinking about what it means to be an essential worker, I think we were really focused on our immediate needs and sort of thinking of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And those were the ones that we were going to prioritize. And the base of the pyramid was what's essential in that case. And that's basically just making sure hospitals are open and that people are fed and everything else was not essential. But then as the pandemic wore on and we realized what risk mitigation strategies were available to us and we could figure out how we could live our lives in a safe way 
indefinitely as it became, (laughs) then we had to reorganize what is essential. And of course, all of the things that are important to us are essential in the end. And that definitely goes far beyond just our immediate physical needs. And so I, for one, am glad that we are rethinking how people work in a workspace and how people can get a lot done without being in a room with other people. But I would advocate for keeping some physical co-location whenever possible because of the sorts of happy accidents that happen when you're in a room with another person and you can have a natural human social interaction. And I don't think it's been replicated in an authentic way through Zoom. No offense. Thank you for sharing that. If you had, again, to redesign your work environment, and you have that power, given your position, Kara, in a sense, not just your work environment, but that of your organization, which includes, you know, 120 or 130 highly qualified professionals working all over the place. If you had a blank sheet of paper, it's a big question. I don't expect a full answer, but I would love to ask all of you for some insight. If you had to redesign the work environment going forward, and we're not redesigning from scratch because we have some legacy system uh, that eventually have some shelf life, but let's assume that as an intellectual exercise, for a mid-sized enterprise, you need to redesign the work environment. What are some of the variables? What are some of the things you like to see? Can you tell us a story about that? Build your own company from scratch with the people you have. Kara, you want to answer that one? So... In learning and training, we think of this idea of personalized learning. And I would love to take like an individual approach to the space. And I know right now we're trying to understand in our organization what employees' preferences are and what kind of environment they can best execute their work, whether that's at home, whether it's virtual, whether it's in an office. And so I would love to think about that idea of personalization and how can you create spaces, not just one space, but multiple spaces in which work can be done and personalized to individuals so that they can execute the best way they're able to. I don't know what that looks like, but that's kind of how I'm thinking about a little bit as we think about our own organization, what the future might look like. Right now, I think we're asking people to experiment. So you're forced to work in an office maybe, and now you've been forced to work from home. Well, now experiment. Let's figure out what combination of things makes sense given the work you do. As a designer, Karin, can you give a shot to answering that question about, if not the shape, I'm not asking for the design, but those things that you have to take into account, those variables that you have to play with as design variables? I think I like the way that Kara said it at the beginning is it really depends on the space and the activity that need to match and they need to match the space. I think human really need to be together in a safe space to share ideas. And there's something about an office space that's quote unquote neutral to the sense of, you know, that you can come in, you kind of expect to have a desk and the computer, be it more fancy than that. But at the end of the day, there's like this idea of exchange of thought and ideas and creating something, right? So I think we need it as humans, but I don't think 
the large corporate America super blocks are something that are going to exist for very long. I think it's going to replicate the smaller ecosystems of a city of cafe like places. And, you know, they'll just be like these hybrid spaces where people can create bigger events for corporate events and things like that. So there's going to be a mix between what's going to be corporate event, a family event, a conference. I think we just need to make sure that humans feel safe. They feel safe in their space. They feel safe to share ideas. They feel safe to come in. I'll give you an example. I was designing this really super cool space. Of course, we ran out of budget and all these like beautiful spaces and ideas and thoughts and tank. Like there was nothing I could put. Like I ended up just putting the shelves on. What happened was people ended up bringing silly things in, like, you know, an old Atari, things they got off of Craigslist, an old sofa. And as I got into the space a few times, I kind of felt, oh, you know what? This is actually ingenious. This idea that people feel safe enough to present themselves and bringing their stuff in. I think that's the key. We're talking about personalizing it, to have an idea. Because I think the whole hoteling, hot desk, it feels very desolate, right? Like who wants to work on a hot desk? I'd much rather work from home. But if I know that there's a space that I can leave like a funny dinosaur there or a book or, you know, there's like my favorite backgammon game that I can bring from home, I think people feel happier that way. It's like their own communal living room that they enjoy with other people. And we need that. We really need that. It's important for us to have a physical space that we can claim as our own that is outside of our house. So the kids have the classroom and the adults have the offices or the factories or wherever it is. I agree. I think we're going to see an inversion, an inversion of uh, purpose. And the notion of if our life is spent between oscillating between individual work, quiet individual work or reflection and social team interaction, project team, organizational interaction, I think we're going to flip it. I think the communal spaces are going to be away from home. They're going to be in the offices. And I'm thinking very seriously about that for the company I work for, which is create those spaces when collective creativity can express itself. Idea generation, brainstorming, option creation, you know, innovation, nurturing, etc., that you couldn't do just by looking at your laptop. And therefore, a lot of those spaces, I don't know about the dinosaurs or the stuffed animals, Karin, maybe they are essential, but are going to be by creating those spaces. It's almost like the anti-cubicle that we're going to have to create, but not just the typical open lab space, but lab spaces. We see already some lab spaces emerging where you may have a corner of the lab, which is a sofa with people with a whiteboard and another corner with machines. But the fundamental there is that this is where teamwork gets expressed. And maybe that's a trend. I don't know. I think if I can add to that, I think what's really important to remember is my job as a designer is not to over-design the space, but to create these anchors from which a person can grow. That's the platform. And yes, it will have some sort of brand identity and so forth. And it's important. And it will have good 
spatial markers for people. This is public place, this is private and so forth. But I think the anchors are key to allow people to really thrive because it's when you're faced with a blank space is that's the scariest part in the world, right? Because it's like, where do you start? Before I ask you for a prediction, and I will put you on the spot about the workspace in three years and in 50 years, or maybe 15 years, I'll be nice to you. What are some of the ethical, maybe social, but primarily ethical consideration we need to take into account when we're rethinking that notion of a distributed, fluid workspace? What are the responsibility of the individual or the responsibility of the corporations? Are there ethical problems or ethical boundaries that we have to be careful of here? At the end of the day, we need privacy. We need boundaries. We need access to ample daylight. We need to know the limitations, the physical limitations of how hard a person can work. You know, like there's child labor laws that were introduced. It was because of that, because people were worked to the ground. And I think we've spiraled into the space where people are overworked and they're in a space where they didn't feel safe because of the pandemic, not because necessarily of their employers, but because of a real external crisis. And I think now we need to refocus the human needs and whatever you design or do through that is going to work because you're going to look at who the person is and what they need. If they need more plants, if they need a space to rest, if they need a space to congregate, and even making sure that their space at home is one that they can still be productive in. My prediction for the next three years is I think we're pretty much, and I would hope we would pretty much go back to quote unquote, the before time with those caveats of understanding that it's not the same. I think in 15 years, there's going to be a larger integration of a lot of AI. And that would be really interesting. But that's your end, not mine. Kara, do you want to address this notion of ethics, either from the point of view of the individual uh, or from the point of view of the corporation, and also give us a little bit your projection as a way to conclude? I'll follow up on something Karen said, which was about people working so hard. I was forced to take this three-day training totally outside of anything in my interest. It was a requirement for a contract. And it was all day for three days, eight hours. But we would go for 50 minutes and they gave me a 10 minute break every hour. And it was like, I was on a vacation. I couldn't even believe that I had 10 minutes (laughs) every hour to go use the restroom or go get a snack or check on my kids. Because it is like back to back, no lunch, nothing. I mean, today is a perfect example of that. And it made me think about some labor rules around people getting breaks and why we implemented those. And I don't know the history of that, but I was thinking there's a reason why those labor rules are in place and why aren't we observing them now, but they are so critical. But I couldn't believe how refreshed how attentive I was during this training course, just to have that little break every hour. It was a terribly boring training, but I could come back refreshed and pay attention for the next 15 minutes. So I do think there are some labor issues that we have to figure out in this kind of environment. Yeah, I think that's interesting and kind of goes back to what I was saying with wanting to block out more of my time to work. And 
I am in charge of my calendar and I fill it up from nine to five every day or eight to six or whatever it is. And it's not a reasonable expectation for me or for anybody to be sitting on Zoom all day or to be even sitting at a desk all day. But then, you know, as somebody who works on teams with other people and I also send out meeting invites, I should be much more aware of what I'm asking other people to do. I would add that I recently came across a documentary video of a workplace from the 1980s. And in this video, they were talking about a particular robot that carried documents from place to place in the office. And they would just put the document on the robot and the robot would take it to the next location. And they were talking about how they interacted with this little train, essentially. And then they went down to the archives and were talking with this woman about how these files came to her and she put it into the computer and then the system for finding it in the computer later. And her prediction was that everything would be on computers in the future and that people who were resistant to this idea of doing things with computers were just going to be left behind. So looking into the future from now, that's clearly true to some extent. But now we also see computers are great for capturing this exchange of information. And we can do things in computers to make finding information easier and having that information presented to you easier. But we haven't really solved the issue of how to have a good social working environment on a computer. It just hasn't been solved yet. So in 15 years, I don't think we're going to be 100% on computers all the time, even if the future continues the way it is now. I just wanted to say that I think it's really interesting that the whole world has experienced radical change and survive. There's power in that. And I wonder if people are thinking in their minds what they're going to do with that knowledge. My life can radically change and I can survive. And what does that mean for me and what I want my experience to be? Do I want it to go back to what it used to be? Do I want it to be different? How do I want it to be different? Is this a series of small changes I'm going to make? Is it one giant change I'm going to make? But I don't think we've seen the effects of people realizing wow, things can be really, really different and I can survive. And that may mean something to me and how I'm going to live my life going further in the future. These are profound insights. I agree. I think the change we just went through will affect not just our work and our space and the boundaries between home and work, but also very much who we are, how we're thinking about ourselves. I hope people will heed the right lessons and not forget too fast, because that's the reason we need to reflect on that. That's why I really want to thank you, Kara, Karine, and Mary, for sharing all these insights and also sharing the personal experience that you just went through, not just the professional one. I hope that we can reconvene in a couple of years and see whether or not some of those predictions get realized. Let's not wait 15 years to do so. Thank you for listening to MindWorks. This is Danielle Surfing. Please join me again for the next episode of the MindWorks podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. 
You can tweet us at MindWorks Podcast or email us at mindworkspodcast at gmail.com. MindWorks is a production of AptiMind Incorporated. My executive producer is Ms. Deborah McNeely and my audio editor is Mr. Connor Simmons. To learn more and to find links mentioned in this episode, please visit aptima.com forward slash MindWorks. Thank you.